And hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast focused on Idaho education and political news. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And this is kind of the April Fool's Day edition, I suppose, but uh, no fooling. The legislature did adjourn last week. We'll talk a little bit about uh, follow-ups on that. But some news breaking this week in the education front on an issue we've uh, written about before, the the whole concept of mastery education. Uh, Clark, you wrote about this and and wrote about what we know about the mastery pilot program. Yeah, on Tuesday, uh, the State Department of Education announced that 19 Idaho schools or school districts had applied to be a part of this pilot project for the mastery-based system of education. Mastery is something that a lot of you may remember. It dates back to the task force recommendations Mm -hmm. from 2013. There have been bills related to mastery in the 2015 and 2016 legislative sessions. And when we talk about mastery, we're essentially talking about You know, not just spending a year in class and avoiding a failing grade. That was the old sort of seat time requirement, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Under mastery, you would advance at a personalized pace based on when you demonstrate, um, well, mastery of the content Mm -hmm. material from the different class, uh, different classes. And this has been pitched as sort of the future of education in Idaho. Uh, there is money available in this year's public school budget to help these 19 schools or districts move through uh, and start developing a mastery plan. Or but, how many pilots are, are approved, because that process is basically still ongoing. And that was one of the issues. The law allowed 20 schools or districts to participate in this mastery program, but we found out from the state that only 19 schools had applied. And even though those 19 schools had applied, they have not yet made the cut. I believe on April 22nd, um, a, a state committee will announce what, uh, which of the final schools make the cut to participate in this mastery and, and program. We should, and we should know it. I mean, it's a fairly wide variety of schools that applied. I mean, you've got the Nampa School District, the third largest school district in the state. You've got Little Free Creek Elementary School in, in Twin Falls County applying. There's but, a number we had of... to, but we had to kind of ferret that out to walk us through that. Yeah, on, so on Tuesday morning, we got the announcement from the state, and all it said was that 19 schools had applied in this review committee uh, would look at the applications and, and decide on the merits if they would go forward. So I called up a spokesperson for the State Department of Education and, and said, well, you know, I'd like to find out who these 19 schools mm-hmm. are. Uh, this is kind of a future of education. Applying for this Idaho. initiative, applying for a share of state money. There's a million dollars in the public school budget to go to this process, and, and we think it should be a little bit more transparent. Uh, the State Department initially denied my request uh, to provide the 19 schools. And so we, we submitted a public records request that morning to the State Department of Education. And by that afternoon, we had returned to us the 19 schools, mm-hmm. which included public schools, charter schools, our t- alternative schools, and like you mentioned, school districts themselves. There were 19 sort of entities that applied. But originally, the state was not going to release that information. They said they wanted to protect uh, essentially the identities of certain schools in case they did not make the cut. Uh, But that was something that I was really happy about, that we were able to get the official information uh, turned around pretty quickly, all the same day. No, they they did turn it around fairly quickly, and I think it is, you know, again, it's another one of those transparency issues we talk about here sometimes. It was important to us to be able to say which schools applied and, and get a sense of, you know, 
where the interest is in mastery. And as it turned out, it was kind of nice to know this on Wednesday because you wound up by happenstance uh, going to one of the school districts that wants a piece of this mastery program uh, for a whole other program. Tell, tell us about Wilder on Wednesday. Yeah, I was out. I had a wild time in Wilder <laughs> on, on, on Wednesday morning. But I went out there because for years, the superintendent and the principal of the joint middle school, high school there have been pushing any number of options to get computing devices in their students' hands. A few years ago, they missed out on the state technology pilot grants. Uh, then, uh, and then one of the poorest, actually, school districts right. in the state, mm -hmm. as you know, Kevin, about 94% of their students qualify for free or reduced price lunch, which is a, a measure of poverty. But anyways, so for years, Wilder officials had been trying to get computing devices into their student hands. In 2014, they had an opportunity come up through Apple Computers and a connected initiative, sort of a partnership with the White House. And so Wednesday was the day that the students, all 450 of them in K-12 and Wilder, finally received their iPads. They got their, they got their tablets. Yeah, they got their tablets, and it was a big community celebration. But one of the things uh, to tie it in with mastery was... Superintendent Jeff Dillon talked about how these devices would go hand-in-hand hand with Wilder's proposal to move to mastery, uh, to focus on personalized, individualized learning, to do some cool and exciting things with a 3D lab, animation studios, uh, drone-based uh, agricultural mm -hmm. com community program. And, and so they hope to use these iPads to kind of level the playing field. They've talked about, you know, 60% of the families. Uh, may not even have home internet access in that community. It's a very different world. I mean, when we're in Boise and we're, you know, talking to school administrators and touring schools in Boise compared to Wilder, which is an hour away, it's a very different environment. Yeah, and so they hope to do a number of things. They hope to get rid of their bell schedule. They hope to do away with letter grades and move to mastery. They hope to move to project-based learning. And, they, and I had met a teacher... Uh, and a high school English teacher there on Wednesday who said, you know, for years we had out-of-date out of textbooks and we had no money and we had a shortage of classroom materials. And he was just so excited. He, he said, we're giving our students the whole entire world with these electronic devices. So it was a big day out in Wilder. They hope to use the iPads in conjunction with their mastery program. And like uh, the other 19 schools or school districts, they will find out April 22nd if they make the mastery pilot, but regardless, the iPads are theirs uh, for it, each of their students. And as you pointed out in your story yet on Wednesday, uh, the kids are just going to basically learn the basics of operating and getting familiar with the tablets the rest of the school year. So a lot of the, the real rollout will happen next year. So uh, It'll next, yeah. next school year, I think we'll definitely want to head back out there and, and see what's going on in the schools. Yeah, and I, and I think there'll be a lot of interest in there. And I know they've been uh, waiting a long time. But kind of speaking sort of in a, an Internet-related subject, Kevin, you continue uh, to cover the broadband situation uh, in, in the post-Idaho Education Network world. What's the latest? Uh, you know, this is kind of like the the scene in The Godfather where where they're talking about every time you you every time you get out they they pull you back in. That's kind of the Idaho Education Network story in in a nutshell. So, at the end of session press conference at the governor's post session press conference on on Monday, probably the most significant uh, news education related that came out on Monday goes back to the 
post-mortem of the Idaho Education Network meltdown. And, and the governor basically brought uh, Attorney General Lawrence Wasden's office into this fray by saying, well, you know, back in 2009, when we were trying to decide how to structure this contract and could we split it off between the two contractors, we received legal advice from Wasden's office that indicated that we could do that. Um, Wasden's office shot back and, and said, well, we've never really had a conversation about this with the governor in terms of what he said on on Monday, uh, they were going back to the Supreme Court ruling that was very, very stinging about the way this contract was corrupted, in the words of the Supreme Court. And by a former ally of Governor Otter. By Mike Courtney, who's a longtime confidant to the governor, who was heading up this project uh, on behalf of the state back in 2009. So this became very personal. I mean, Governor Otter was clearly trying to, you know, give some distance to Mike Courtney and saying, you know, he has been shouldering most of the blame for this and, you know, kind of suggesting that there's more to the story. And the attorney general's office kind of pointedly going back to the Supreme Court ruling that laid a lot of the blame back at Mike Wartney's uh, feet. So this has become, uh, you know, not just an ongoing story, but now it's become kind of a personalized story. This is all. not, as you know, Kevin, this is not the first time that a prominent Idaho Republican has taken public issue with Attorney General Lawrence Wasden, who is also a prominent Republican. And that ties into this story as well, because at the end of the legislative session, we saw uh, Bart Davis, the Senate Majority Leader, hold up the Attorney General's budget to make a point to to register his uh, opposition to where the uh, where the Attorney General has come down on spent fuel shipments to the, to the INL, so not an education-related issue, but there is obviously some growing friction between state house Republicans, and a lot of it is directed between uh, the attorney general and now the governor and, and legislative leaders. And it's kind of a dynamic shift on this whole broadband debate because you got to remember the attorney general's office has not been involved in defending this contract in court. They've kind of had an arm's length relationship with this whole fight because. The state outsourced most of the legal representation on this mess to a Boise firm at so a taxpayer cost of more than a million dollars. So now you've got the attorney general being brought into this dispute. So we haven't heard the last of it, and it's uh, it's getting a little chippy. It is, and, and I know that you'll continue um, to watch that. I know you also took a closer look at the education budgets, Kevin. In years past, those have been a sticking point. And, and kind Speaking of, of chippy issues, you know, education yeah, funding has been that. In the and, and they had been part of this battle between, we talk about this delicate balance between the budget and the policy side of things. This year, not so much. And, and the governor has started signing uh, those education budgets as well. He started signing them on Monday, the same day he did his post-session uh, presser. It, what got me interested in this, and we both saw it on, on our respective chambers uh, of the legislature, the $1.58 billion of K-12 spending sailed through both houses. The main budgets kind of went through within a half an hour with very little opposition in right. the House and no opposition in the Senate. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to look at what does that mean and how does that tie into where education uh, fits into the, the larger political debate going on in the state house. A lot of it goes back to these are recommendations from the task force. We're three years into it. We're three years into funding it, so there's some familiarity. Um, 
also you have more money. I mean, you have more ability to put money into K-12 spending because revenues the, are up. the revenues are up. Yeah. But what we also saw, and I found it kind of interesting, and you can check the story at IdahoHoodNews.org, we looked at the five legislators who opposed the most education spending. We kind of crunched the numbers and pointed out the five hardliners on education funding and kind of quantified how much money we're talking about and which legislators we're talking about. And we looked at some of the smaller but important education funding issues that that did get a little bit more scrutiny in the state house. And here we're talking about some new initiatives, like school security, like STEM, uh, like the uh, the Ibarra Rural Center proposal right. that passed the House and died in the Senate. So when you get newer initiatives, you have to get a little bit more scrutiny, a little bit more uh, opposition on the floors. So you know, just kind of a step back look at um, where education funding debates are now and where they may be headed in 2017. Another step back story that you did, um, you know, talk about some of the highlights of this. I uh, sat down with the chairman of the House Education Committee, who is uh, leaving the legislature after uh, after this year. Yeah, on on Thursday, I had a chance to publish uh, kind of a retrospective, looking at uh, Reed De Mordaunt. He he's been the uh, chairman of the House Education Committee since 2013. I believe he will not be running for re-election, and so use the article for a couple of purposes. One, to kind of look back uh, at, at his tenure. It's kind of interesting, right as we were ramping up with the task force recommendations coming out, he was becoming chairman. There was the transition between uh, superintendent, former superintendent Tom Luna, current superintendent Sherry Ybarra. But it also means there's some changes on the way for the House Education Committee. We know they're going to need uh, a new chairman, a new person to lead that committee starting next year. House leadership has not announced that and, and won't announce that until well after uh, both the primary and the general elections it in November. It may be December in that organizational yeah. session that they have after the elections before we know who's going to run so House education. We won't know for a, a long time, but we know there's going to be an opening. And this is still an interesting point. You talked about how smooth of a process the budgets had this year. We're still going to be on... Uh, year four of the task force implementation next year, most likely year three on the career ladder. So still a lot of unfinished work to do. It was kind of interesting. I sat down with uh, Representative Julie Van Orden out of the Blackfoot area. She's been the vice chair on house education for the last couple of years, and she did say that she uh, is interested in, in becoming chairman. And, if, and, has, and has vice chair. She would seem to be the logical heir apparent. There's no guarantee. No. No, uh, not at all. Uh, they could even pick someone, theoretically, from outside the committee. They could pick a younger member of the committee. But it would be sort of keeping with a generalized sense of tradition to promote the vice chair, uh, especially if that person has been groomed by the previous chair. But And she carries some respect around the state house on education issues. Carried a bunch of legislation at the very end of the legislative session on, on education. She sure did. She's anticipating being part of the school funding interim committee that's going to get to work uh, here over the summer. And uh, so she said she would be interested. And so that was kind of an interesting piece. If you want to look back at, at uh, basically the last two, three years of progress on the education front, it kind of really overlaps with Reed DeMordant's ascension to chairman of the House Education Committee. So I, I enjoyed that, and it's up there. Uh, if you want to take a look at back at that, and also just take a little bit of a look forward at, at what may be in store for the future of House Education. And one of the things that's interesting about Representative DeMordant's decision not to run again, 
Uh, this is not unprecedented. We've seen this before with legislators of both parties. You know, Representative de Mordaunt is, you know, is a professional. He's uh, one of the younger, one of the younger members of the legislature. And you see this happen where you have legislators who are kind of at a career crossroads where the the job of being a legislator for three months out of the year is really interfering with the job that they uh, hold the other nine months out of the year. So they're faced with this really difficult decision of whether to continue with their political career or to continue with their quote-unquote day job career. And, and for Representative de Mordaunt, it came down to, uh, you got to put uh, the day job first. And, and Representative de Mordaunt, he owns a software company in the Treasure Valley, uh, he does business all throughout the country, and he travels the world. And he was very clear with me and in his official announcement that uh, his business is growing, and, and he couldn't do both. He couldn't be in the legislature and run his own business. And so he was very clear about that, uh, that this decision was made so that he could focus on his business. Another interesting tentacle to this story is that after Reed DeMordant said he was not going to run again, his wife, Gay Ann DeMordant, mm -hmm. who's been involved with Republican politics at the state level and involved with uh, charter school movement at the state level, filed to run for his old seat. So a lot of interesting stuff and that's going be, on. And that's going to be a good primary to watch, and we'll definitely want to do more. It'll be contested, yeah. Because you have Gay Ann DeMordant, but you also have uh, Doug Jones, who was in the legislature representing the Magic Valley for 22 years. He's since moved to Meridian. And he's running, so that's a very interesting Republican primary we'll take a closer look at between now and May 17th. Yeah, but anyways, I want to thank everybody uh, so much for listening. We will be back again next Friday with a brand new episode of the Extra Credit Podcast. In the meantime, you can follow Idaho Education News on Twitter and like us on Facebook to keep the conversation going. Uh, but anyways, thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. And I'm Kevin. Talk to you next week.